Hi, Rana. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and understand why leaders do what they do, what inspired them, what motivated them, and what's their vision for tomorrow. Could you tell us a bit about who you are and what do you do today? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Rana Al-Kalyubi. I'm co-founder and CEO of Affectiva. We are an MIT spin-out uh, on a mission to humanize technology. So we build emotional intelligence into our technology and our devices. And we fundamentally believe that this will not only change our relationship with uh, our devices and technology, but ultimately how we connect and communicate with one another as humans. Tell us more. How did this idea come to you? You've spoken about it uh, in several interviews, but what was that aha moment when you said that there really is a company uh, waiting to happen here? Yeah, so, you know, I never set out to start a company, actually. Uh, I grew up in the Middle East and I had the opportunity to move to Cambridge, uh, UK, to do my PhD at Cambridge University in, in computer vision and machine learning. And um, it was my first experience being away from my family. So I, I get to Cambridge. Um, actually, I was a new bride at the, at the time. And so my um, husband at the time was back in Cairo running his own startup and I was in Cambridge. And I just realized that I was spending a lot of time with my laptop at the time. This was even before smartphones. Um, and yet this machine had absolutely no clue how I was feeling. But maybe even worse, it was the main mode of communication I used to stay in touch with my family back home. And all of the richness of our facial expressions and our gestures and vocal intonations, like all of that was just lost in cyberspace. So that got me thinking, what if technology could understand human emotions just the way we do as people? And, you know, and, and that set me on a, you know, it's been 20 years since since that aha moment. And it set me on a journey to not only build this technology, but commercialize it as well. And um, when you started this company or when you when this project became a company, um, were you prepared in terms of taking on such a complicated challenge in terms of technology, ethics, AI, and also figuring out a business model? Did you have any fears at that time? If yes, what were they? So um, just a little bit of context. Like after Cambridge, I came to MIT um, in the U.S. as a postdoc and research scientist. Uh, with the kind of fixated on becoming faculty at MIT. And I was doing really well, doing really great research. Um, but we started to get a lot of commercial interest in the technology. So we would invite all these Fortune 500 companies and they would um, express interest in buying the technology or licensing it. And there was no mechanism to do that at, at MIT, of course, because it's an academic institution. So that provided the impetus to start Affectiva. Uh, with my co-founder, Professor Rosalind Picard. Um, and you know what? Like both she and I, I mean, this is our first company and um, I think we were naive about it. So when I look back at our first investment decks and pitch decks and product, you know, product roadmaps, oh my God, we were like so naive. And in a way, I think if I had known how complex this would be, maybe I would not have embarked on this journey. There's There's something really... Um, helpful 
in being oblivious to to all of the challenges. Um, yeah, and so we had to figure out the product market fit. We had to choose which market we focus on because there are so many applications of this technology. Of course, we had to hire the team and we had to put a, um, a number of really strong core values that kind of are our North Star in deciding how to develop and deploy this technology. And uh, when when the company started coming to you um, and you said that, you know, there's clearly a product out there, mm -hmm. what were they coming to you for? What was their unmet demand that mm -hmm. Affectiva and you and your co-founder uh, could fulfill? What was surprising about the market uh, at that time and how much has it evolved since then? Yeah, so at the time at MIT, I was focused on deploying this technology, which is kind of facial understanding and facial inference of emotions um, to autism, because a lot of autistic individuals struggle with understanding, um, you know, emotion signals and nonverbal communication. But these Fortune 500 companies, I mean, we had Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Coca-Cola, uh, Pepsi, Bank of America, like they all wanted to understand the emotional engagement their customers had with their content, with their products, with their services. And the gold standard or kind of conventional approach of getting that data was to ask people, which is of course very helpful information, but it's often quite different than your subconscious like gut reaction or gut feeling towards a product or a service or, or, or an ad, right? And, and they were missing that kind of emotional reaction which we know drives behaviors like purchase intent and um, virality so they really wanted to tap into the emotion brain of their of their consumers if you like and we provided a way to do that at scale so that was one kind of really clear kind of um, set of use cases the other was around automotive which is something we are very focused on right now um, and, and there it was more about, okay, can you help us understand the state of the driver? Are they tired? Are they distracted? Are they drowsy? Are they intoxicated? And then the car would take action to ensure that the driver and the occupants are safe. And I would imagine that uh, education would be another uh, important use case to figure out whether a student is paying attention, whether a student is really getting the concept. I heard one of your talks at, uh, I think, Web Summit a few years back. And uh, education has evolved so much from that. Affectiva has also evolved. Where are you in terms of figuring out a, a product market fit for, for Affectiva in education? I ask because uh, Network Capital essentially is uh, trying to augment career intelligence around the world. Mm -hmm. And education is a critical component of that. Yeah, I mean, it's such a timely issue right now as we, as you know, as we record in these really tough times. And, you know, I have two kids. One is a junior in high school and the other is in fifth grade. And they're moving to online learning, right? So the, the thing that is special about being in a classroom is that a, a great teacher can observe his or her students and determine the level of engagement, right? They can tell if you're interested, if you're bored, if you're frustrated, if you're attentive, if you're engaged, and they adapt the content accordingly. They personalize it, they call on you, they engage you. Now think about online learning environments 
um, where this information is not available and it's not personalized and it's not, you know, it has, it's completely oblivious to whether you're bored or interested or engaged or not. And so I believe there's a huge opportunity to um, augment online learning environments with emotion AI to get an understanding of the student's level of engagement and then adapt the content accordingly. Um, and I think it's very timely right now, but I also think, you know, I grew up in Egypt uh, and, and you are, of course, in India. I think there's a huge opportunity to democratize access to education with technology. And the more effective it is, of course, you know, the, the better, the better, we, you know, the students will yeah. be. Democratize quality education. Um, exactly. Both you and I studied abroad. Um, but uh, the situation in early learning levels in 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 middle income and low income countries is abysmal. Right. right. So there's a huge role there. But uh, you know, you mentioned this term emotional AI. Could you explain it in really simple terms? Uh, what it means and uh, how can a layperson understand uh, how to you know make sense of it? Yeah, it's very simple. I, I like to start by looking at human intelligence. Uh, we often think about your IQ, your cognitive intelligence as being very important. Of course it is. But your EQ, your emotional intelligence, is equally important as well, right? It's, it's uh, your ability to clue into other people's emotional states and adapt your response accordingly. And, you know, kids as young as three or four year olds have this kind of sophisticated EQ engine um, that allows them to make decisions based on the emotions of people around them. Um, now, I believe that this kind of emotional intelligence is equally important for technology, especially technology that interacts with us on a day to day basis, like your smartphone, your Amazon Alexa, your Google Home, your car um, and and I think these devices need to have not only IQ, but EQ as well. And, and to simplify it, basically, it's the idea of understanding your facial expressions, your gestures, your vocal intonations, and make that available to the device so that it can act accordingly. And does it differ according to culture uh, and, say, nation? You know, I have a favorite story about that. When I was a PhD student, um, I was developing kind of an early version of this technology and I had a head nod detector and a head shake detector in, in my in my algorithms, right? I think I, and I, I do you know where this is going? Do you know where this is going? Yeah. And so I went to like my first, you know, computer vision and pattern recognition conference in the US and I was so excited and nervous and you know I had set up my booth and I was demoing it. And I just kept getting this slew of like Indian, you know, PhD students <laughs> to test it. And they would do like this head bob, right? I'd say, okay, let's test the head nod. And they do like this weird, and they totally broke my system. So um, that was my first lesson that, you know, some expressions are universal, like a smile, um, but some gestures in particular are very culturally specific. And we have to train these algorithms uh, from data around the world. Like data diversity is so critical. Otherwise, your algorithm just doesn't work. Um, yeah, and the I, Indian head, head bob has confused scientists and gen, from millennia. So yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> um, tell us about the ethical nuances when you were trying to, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll be getting deals from all sectors uh, because this is such a useful uh, technology. 
Uh, what was some ethical uh, question that you had to ask yourself when you were, say, writing the mission statement or taking some difficult business calls? How did you go about that? Yeah, when we first started, uh, Roz Picard, my co-founder, and I um, kind of tried to decide on, we, we acknowledged that there are so many industries that could make use of this technology, and we wanted to put some criteria in place to help us decide where to focus our energies. And very early on, we decided that integrity of the data and the science is critical, opt-in and privacy, like this is super personal data. So we wanted to make sure that people were opting in clearly um, and had the opportunity to opt out if they didn't want to participate or share their data. And then, of course, um, that they were getting some value in return. So that meant that there were some industries that we just did not want to entertain, for example, surveillance and security and lie detection, like all of these areas where people often don't know that they're being recorded, they don't know who's looking at the data, how is it being used, and there's high risk for discrimination and profiling against minority groups. So we completely steer away from that and um, we really try to focus our efforts on use cases that can, can really help people. Um, like automotive, for instance, or mental health is another big one. Oh, talk to me about mental health. I mean, how does Affectiva have a use case in mental health? Because that's something that uh, each of us needs to be aware of in these trying times uh, of coronavirus and what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we know from this is research that we haven't done ourselves, but there are facial and vocal biomarkers of you know, things like depression, even suicidal intent, Parkinson's. So by looking at a person's facial expressions as they, say, go about their daily activities or as they're online watching content, you could clue into these kind of atypical facial movements, and these can be indicators for things like depression. Um, so we, we've done some pilot work with a number of partners in the kind of medical community in the pharma uh, space where they've kind of validated some of that work. Um, there's a lot more to be done there. And I think there's an opportunity to do this work at scale. So if anybody's listening to this podcast and is interested, um, you know, India, of course, would be an amazing ground for, for um, piloting some of this because, of course, there you've got the scale, which is really cool. I mean, the scale is important because you need to train these algorithms, so you need a lot of data. Right, right. Um, and autism is another area that's just, I mean, this technology is helping so many kids, um, and there's, again, a chance to do a lot more. Right. So from what I understand is that there are both uh, uh, predictive capabilities as well as uh, augmenting capabilities. Predictive in terms of figuring out what might lead to a, uh, a breakdown and augmenting means like really helping people with uh, certain challenges uh, move forward and uh, embrace uh, what life has in store. I like, you know, I can totally see it. More power to you for, uh, for exploring such use cases, Rana. Yeah, but that's, I like how you summarized it exactly. Some are predictive and kind of measurement, and some are augmentative or kind of um, social training tools. Right. Um, uh, you know, we're a global community. We, uh, like, I'm, of course, uh, mm -hmm. Indian, but we're mm -hmm. active in 100 countries in the Middle East, uh, in Africa, in, in Europe, India. And I think this uh, 
this quest for well-being and uh, mental health is something that I'm seeing amongst millennials all around the world. So this is a use case where we can definitely like, you know, do something together um, to use our 100,000 global tribe that we have uh, our millennials around the world to, you know, to, you know, pool in that data. I love that. that we do. Um, my my next question, or rather my next segment, is that now that you're a uh, you know you you're a successful business woman, um, you started out wanting to be an academic. What did you want to be when you were a child, and who nudged your career choices? Uh, now that you look back, is there any advice that you would have given to your younger self, uh, even even as you've accomplished so much? Um, I was I was very influenced by my parents. So both my parents are technology, even even if I didn't admit it at the time, right? So my my dad and my mom met at a programming class in the seventies, and my mom was actually one of the. I know they they he taught her COBOL programming, <laughs> um, and my mom was one of the very first female programmers in the Middle East. She worked in the um, National Bank of Kuwait as a systems analyst and. Um, so I, I definitely grew up in a very technology-oriented uh, family, even though, and so I, I'm sure that that kind of influenced my decision to study computer science. Um, and I also would say, like, we just, my, my parents just wanted to instill this love of learning, out, even in school, but also outside of school. We traveled a lot as kids. We were very kind of exposed to a lot of cultures and, and just, you know, curious about the other right there was no fear of the other there was always a curiosity about the other and i think that has i i really honestly believe that's why i felt so comfortable traveling to the united kingdom on my own and then later on you know moving with my two kids as a single mom to boston where we now live um and i attribute that to just my parents really creating this intellectual curiosity um in us um as as young kids now to the second part of your question, which is advice I'd give my younger self. Um, I have, and I, I talk about that in, in my in, in my book, Girl Decoded, which comes out in a couple of weeks. Um, Can't wait to read it, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 I I, I talk openly about my kind of experience struggling with this because I feel, in a way, I have often been my own biggest obstacle. Um, I have this like doubting voice in my head that's always saying, oh, you, like, you can't start a company. You, you've never done this before. What? You're going to like build an emotion AI engine? Like nobody's done that before. You're going to fail miserably, right? Like all the time. Like you can't, you shan't, you know, you shouldn't, you wouldn't, like whatever. Um, and I've had to really work hard to reframe that voice in a way that, you know, I don't ignore the voice, but I negotiate with the voice. Um, and I found that supporting, you know, surrounding myself with a lot of mentors and cheerleaders is really critical because you do run into a lot of naysayers, right? And so yeah. um, you need to balance that out with people who really support you. Um one of the issues that uh, we as a community are very interested in is uh, the impact of failures and missteps towards long-term success. Are you comfortable talking about some of your failures and missteps and uh, how they helped you grow as a person or not? 
Now I am, right? Like, I feel like growing up, I wasn't necessarily, oh, in fact, I wasn't necessarily open to talking about them, not only to people around me, but even to myself. Like, I feel like I didn't even acknowledge that to myself. And again, that's kind of this process of writing the book was almost a process of self-discovery where I was like, oh my goodness. Like, you know, I was in Kuwait when the first Gulf War happened and we had to evacuate our home and, you know, move back to Egypt. Um, and that was, I was 12 at the time and it was pretty traumatic. And the way I responded to that was I just shut down my emotions and I just went into like overdrive mode. Like I, beca I became super competitive at school. I just focused on working hard. And in a way that theme is reoccurring in my life. Like whenever a crisis like kind of, you, you know, falls my way, I just rally even more and I'm like, okay, like whatever. And then I just focus on things I can control. I like that, but now I've modified that to also be vulnerable and acknowledge that, you know what, it's, it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be upset. I mean, um, one story that I that I would like to share is in in 2013. Um, you know, I feel like, and I journal a lot, so I can go back and kind of read my entries at the time. My my life felt like it was falling apart. So Affectiva was going through a very tough time. Uh, we had two technologies back then: a hardware sensor and the software kind of facial algorithm. And we decided as a company to to unwind the hardware business because it was really hard to, to manage and it was not our kind of area of expertise um, but that created a lot of angst with my co-founder and uh, you know our CEO at the time left I was at the same time going through a divorce which is quite you know still kind of unacceptable in, in the Middle East um, so I just felt like my my world was falling apart and it was it was really lonely I felt very isolated and I felt like a complete failure honestly I just felt like I failed everybody around me and I, I was scared that I would, you know, run Affectiva to the ground. I had all these, like, if you read my journal, like the weird, the, the word fear was all over the place. I had so many fears. Um, but in a way, you know, I, I emerged from it and I look back on these days and, and um, I've, I learned a lot. It helped me become a lot more independent as a person, both financially, emotionally, professionally, um, yeah, so so I, I, I think it's important to to see failures as opportunities for improvement and, and and now I know, you know that, you know, with the right attitude and hopefully with the right people around you, you, you do emerge from these kind of tough times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, negotiating with fear. Could you um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, could you Offer some practical tips or things that worked for you uh, as you negotiated with your fear at that time. Yeah, one one thing that worked really well for me during that time, and that's when I started doing it, was is the journaling. So I keep a journal. I use an app called Day One. It's fantastic, super easy to use. Um, I've now been journaling for over seven years or so, and um, and and it's 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 multimodal, so you can. You know, sometimes I'll write, sometimes I'll just upload a picture or upload a video or even take a screenshot off my phone and just tag it there. Um, and the good thing about this is, you know, first, it's an opportunity to get out your emotions in a safe way, which uh, sometimes you can't do, right? Like as a CEO of a company, for example, I can't go whine to my team or vent to my investors. I 
so, and, and even like, you know, my family are amazing, but they don't necessarily get all of the challenges of being a CEO, right? Right. So the, so the journal is kind of a conduit for getting all of that out. Um, but I think there's the added benefit of being able to go back, like, you know, months later or years later even, and I reread it, and it's just powerful because I can remember how I felt at the time, and it was really tough. And now I'm like, wow, I, I emer- you know, I emerged out of this, like, stronger. My kids are fine. We're all good. And that just gives you a sense of, of, of um of power and that you can act you can actually do this right and so i really i really do um suggest journaling um as i as i found it very powerful got it um what's your vision for affectiva where do you see this going in the coming five years um, or longer the vision is to humanize technology and i really believe that in the next few years when we're already seeing signs of that we are going to be interacting with our devices just the same way we interact with one another through conversation, through perception, and through empathy. And and I believe that our technology can play a key role in um, creating this future version of the world of the world. You know, I read this interesting research uh, by Jamil Zaki on empathy, and he says that empathy is like a muscle. Uh, if you if you don't exercise it, it atrophies. And if you, you know, if you keep at it, you can actually build your empathy quotient. Um, and I think in a way, uh, Affectiva is trying to work a strengthen uh, empathy um, around the world. Um, could you tell me some of your fears uh, that you have today? Like not the fears that you had, but the fears uh-huh. or anxieties that you have as you scale your company. Oh, that's a good, that's a great one. Um, I mean, the the biggest fear I have, like any entrepreneur, is that, um, y- you know, we run out of of gas before we really s- kind of see through our vision, right? Um, right. So that's that's just that's just like even like the day after I've raised money for the company, I still have this fear. It's like it doesn't go away. (laughs) Um, That's that's one. I do. This almost like a fear, but I I do believe that this technology can do amazing things in the world. But I'm not naive. I also realize it can it can hurt people if we don't if we don't do it in a very thoughtful way. Um, And so that's a fear of mine. Like, and I try to control it by being a very vocal advocate for AI ethics. Um, and then just generally, I have struggled all my life, like really, and especially with, with Affectiva, like balancing my family and the business. Um, right. And it's, I'm a work in progress. I try to really work hard on that. And I'm very close to my two kids. But one of my fears is that, you know, I lose that really close connection I have with them. Like I, you know, there's no manual for, for, for raising kids. Um, and I and, and they're wonderful and we're so close, but I don't know what to do to keep it that way. Do you know what I mean? So, so that's definitely a fear. Yeah. <laughs> you spoke about your mentors a few minutes back. Um, are there some mentors that you still turn to or have there been some mentors that you turn to for advice about your career or life at large? And if yes, what role have they played in your career? Oh my God, me- mentors. Yeah, and I've been super fortunate that um, you know, I've had a number of mentors who have really 
been helpful throughout my career. Of course, uh, you know, I'll start with Roz Picard. She's, as I said, my co-founder and she's my role model and mentor in many, many ways. <clears throat> um, so, 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 you know, I was able to look at her and, and say, oh my God, I want to be like her, right? Because I could, you know, it's hard, it's, it's sometimes hard to resonate. Like, like, it's hard for me to look at, say, I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg and say, ooh, I want to be like him, right? Like, we're so different. Our lives are so different. Whereas with Roz, you know, she's a mom, she's three kids, super smart, you, you know, like, like an innovator, a pioneer. And I'm like, oh, I can be like her, right? Um, so that's important. Um, and then, you know, there was one particular mentor who just helped me um, see myself in the role of CEO. I had a lot of, I wanted to be CEO of the company, um, but I had a lot of fears again. Um, and he just helped me visualize it and helped me kind of create a path to getting there. Um, and I would not have been able to do that on my own. So, um, you know, I try to pay it forward today. We have an amazing set of men, you know, internship programs and interns that we coach and mentor. Um, and I, I just, you know, I, I try to pay it forward whenever I can. Um, absolutely. Um, you've done, you've been, you yourself are such a role model for people around the world. Somebody actually who used to work for me has just applied for an internship. Oh, really? Because she used to be inspired. Oh, she is so inspired by you. Um, tell me, uh, Irana, um, and before I move, I just want to point you towards a quick research done in Boston about uh, the importance of relatable mentors in shaping huh. long-term career success. I'm going to send oh, that wow. to you. Oh, please but do. Relatability is particularly important because mm -hmm. uh, if you can't relate to a person at all, that person will find it really hard to be able to give advice uh, that helps you augment your potential. Totally. That is so true of my ex yeah, Please do send it over. Yeah. Um, Rana, when did you start writing your book and how did you decide its name? So I started writing almost two and a half years ago. Um, the book, kind of the reason I, I, I got started on it is I wanted to share with the world this vision of a human-centric technology and all of the kind of possibilities and applications of it. But as I started writing, it quickly became clear that, my, that I also wanted to share my personal story with the world, right? I took a very unusual path very unexpected, you know, I had to break out of cultural norms and societal norms and, um, and, and not without struggles, right? And I wanted to share that story with the world as a way to hopefully inspire and motivate other people. Um, so, 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 so the initial kind of title of the book was very focused on the technology and then uh, we landed on Girl Decoded uh, because it's really about I had to decode myself, like in building this technology and figuring out how do emotions work. I had to figure out my own emotions and my own experiences, um, and, and and yeah, and so it's uh, it's this journey of decoding both technology and myself. And uh, being a CEO, um, you obviously are short of time. How did you? inculcate the discipline to write over and above the journaling and running the business and you know doing being a mom and all of that 
I will say, so I have a co-author, Carol Coleman. Um, she was the, actually the person who kind of planted the seed of the book in my in, in my brain. I, I ran into her. We, we'd met many years ago, and I ran into her in 20, what was it, 15 or 16? And she said, oh, Rana, you need to write a book. And I was like, I have nothing to write about. And she was like, no, of course you do. And so she kind of uh, nudged me into writing the book. Um, and she, she, she's been, so, so I know it's in my voice. Um, but Carol basically gave me like weekly assignments, which I often did on flights. I travel a lot for work, uh, and flights is like the perfect time. You're on your own. You're not really interruptible. Um, and so I did a lot of the writing, um, during that time and she would just give me assignments. And if I didn't do my homework, I'd be in trouble. So, <laughs> um. So that was that was a really wonderful partnership, right? And uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the several takeaways and examples from the book, you know, we always have an invisible audience you want to make really proud of or really inspire them. So, who's your invisible audience? Who do you want this book to uh, inspire the most? That is an amazing question. I love that. And I haven't thought of it that way, but I think I know the answer. So I think my invisible audience are young people, especially, I, I mean, I want to, I mean, of course, young women uh, who are, you know, you know, forging their own path. And I mean, young, like, you know, I don't know, 17 to 25, right? Like there's, you know, young, still trying to build their character and their personality, and they have all these doubts. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not just necessarily young women. I, 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 you know, having grown up in the Middle East, I do believe that my story is a message of hope for young people in our parts of the world, right, where there's a lot of challenges, economic and societal. And, um, and if I can, you know, if I can inspire some of, of, of that audience, um, I would feel like, you know, my... My mission has been accomplished with the book. Yeah, I'm so sure of that will happen because, um, uh, you know, I was briefly telling you before we started, I was uh, speaking at AUC where you, mm -hmm. uh, where you studied and uh, there were posters all around. And uh, I hope overheard a conversation about, you know, two, two um, uh, young women just talking about, you know, what they were looking forward to. You know, I think you were giving a keynote. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I could overhear the sense, the palpable sense of enthusiasm in what they wanted to glean from that, uh, you know, like poster of yours. Everyone else, other posters was, was that of, of men, mm -hmm. but your one poster and they were standing near and it was really refreshing to, to, to see um, what, you know, one uh, figure of relatable figure of uh, inspiration can do so I, i'm pretty confident that uh, it'll reach them how um, how have you structured the book uh, is there like was there an operating framework or did it evolve as you started writing with your co-author i mean again it's the the first kind of few chapters of the book were very focused on the technology i mean i remember um you know, we had written kind of a book proposal and the first few chapters, and then we had lunch with, uh, we were pitching to uh, Penguin Random House, which is my publisher, and I right. had lunch with the editor, 
And he was just, he was telling me like, listen, caveat, I get pitched AI books all the time. I've stopped accepting any of them. So I'm just letting you know that, you know, I'm not taking any AI books. And I was like, oh God. And then, and then he said, so <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's not a good start, right? Like we're having lunch. I'm like, okay, this will be a super short lunch. Uh, and then he said, you know, just tell me your story. And I was like, oh, you know, I was born in Egypt, grew up in the Middle East, like, you know, I wore the hijab and then took it off. And he was like, that's the book. And so we quickly pivoted to uh, to this idea of a memoir uh, where I, you know, where I kind of mix or interweave the technology. And I try to really make the technology accessible to non-domain experts. So the, the technology pieces of the book are written in a way that you know, is hopefully very accessible to non-computer scientists. There's a lot of AI books for computer scientists, but there's not a lot of AI books for non-domain experts. And then it, you, woven through it um, is my personal journey, which is true to my experience. I mean, my journey of building this technology and starting the company is super interwoven with my personal story of like getting married and then getting divorced and my two kids and, um, so it's a very human story. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, I have a wish, uh, you know, I have a wish. Uh, I wish it could be fulfilled, though, uh, maybe for the next edition. I wish you could add a chapter, okay. uh, work and life uh, in the age of coronavirus, because I'm sure yep. it impacted your life, your kids' lives, your business in many ways. Uh, do you mind sharing your initial thoughts on um how has this crisis surprised you, if at all? Uh, what has been the impact in the business? Um, do you think that the book coming out right now, um, you know, does it cover some of the aspects that have happened uh, and have they been surprising at all? You know, what? what is, what is um, just so interesting about this time we live in today, there's one chapter in the book where I talk about my aha moment when I was texting my ex you know, he was in right. Egypt, I was in Cambridge, and I just felt so lonely and isolated. And I was in tears, but I didn't want to tell him that I'm in tears. So I kind of masked it online. And he right. couldn't tell. And he just, you know, we just had a very kind of dry iceberg type conversation. And it felt awful. And that was the impetus for for starting all of this work. And I feel like I'm back at this moment again today with all of our communication moving online. And the rich, like people are yearning for this authentic human connection, but it's really hard to get when you're online. So I feel in a way, you know, this book timely given what's happening in the world. And I, and I feel like I can draw from my experience to share some key takeaways or learnings on how to lead through this crisis. How do you lead with empathy? How do you make sure, you know, your team is connected? Um, but but also so so that's kind of you know that 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 uh, but but of course you know like um, you know I I had scheduled a two month book tour um, in the United States and then I was going to go to London and and that's all like on hold now so the book is still publishing on April twenty first but we're moving to a virtual book tour and yesterday I I, I did this kickoff book talk with my daughter in the kitchen and she interviewed me and you know it was amazing it was just very authentic many of our community members joined by the way oh really from all around the world yep that is awesome yeah we, yeah, we had we had a lot of people all your virtual book tours are you know uh, participated as if people were on uh, people were actually sitting uh, on in the stadium 
I, I love that. Um, and and I, we were surprised by that. Like a lot of people tuned in, a lot of questions. Um, so, you know, we're, we're hustling, we're being creative. <laughs> um, but, but I do think it's challenging. And then you asked about work on, and kids, you know, my kids are learning from home like many other families. Um, and we actually took in a couple of students who could not fly back home to their families uh, because the borders are closed. And, you know, so it's hard, right? It's really hard negotiating internet bandwidth and making sure that everybody is mentally healthy. And um, But again, I think my approach is to acknowledge that it's hard, acknowledge that it's challenging and r rally together, right? We're in it together and we're gonna problem solve through it together. Um, just the last few questions about, uh, you know, who you are outside of work and, uh, you know, when you're not being the CEO. Um, is there a book that you've either gifted or read that has made an indelible mark on you? Yes. Um, most recently, I've been, I've re I read uh, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, and um, it just resonated with me so much. It's a simple read. It's an easy read. Um, I loved how he talks about like when you face an obstacle you have a choice you either give give up like you just basically acknowledge that's the end of the road or you kind of turn it around or go around it go above it underneath it whatever and just keep you know keep forging forward so that resonated with me and I've I've sent the book to a, f a few people who I thought would benefit from it um yeah so that's 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 one book that comes to mind and uh what's what's what kind of music do you like and uh, which what's the one movie or television show that you tune, on, tune into when you want to unwind so music i love a lot of music i listen to um a lot of arabic music for example but the but but my favorite music probably at the moment i um i do zumba dancing um so it's a form of aerobic exercise but also like in the form of dance and it's often like let, let latin music and salsa music and i love that and it's my self-care time i have it blocked on my calendar my team know never to schedule on top of my zumba classes <laughs> um they have moved virtual which is not the same unfortunately but i still try to attend if i can um um yeah so um happy happy music for sure <laughs> And then my favorite movie. Yeah, I'm a I'm a rom com uh, chick flick. <laughs> um, I don't know the one. I mean, I love my. Um, actually, a few days ago, we were, we were watching uh, my big fat Greek wedding. That's that's right. a good movie. I like that. Um, you know, for a very brief while, I used to live in New York uh, in an apartment where right next to which this uh, wedding was shown. No this way! Was that's so <laughs> yeah. cool. Um, uh, and lastly, uh, is there is there something that you do, or is there uh, a time during the, the the day where you do nothing productive? You just meander, do nothing, and uh, that time is your time, undisturbed. <sighs> you know, I probably should do more of that. I am not very good at. I mean, if you look at my calendar, it's often overscheduled. Um, right outside and even like exercise is scheduled in there. And, and my daughter will make fun of me because when we go on vacation, I will actually write down goals for the trip, including have fun. Like I actually like write have fun as a goal. <laughs> so, so I should Some probably- Some might call it nerdy. But... <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So I probably need to, I mean, shower time. Shower time is usually when it's like, you know, kind of unwinding time. But no, yeah, I probably need to do more of that. Perfect. Last question, Rana. Um, is there a, a parting message that you want to share with uh, millennials, young girls around the world uh, listening into you? We have a tribe of about 100,000 subscribers uh, on this medium. They'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I think, um, again, kind of embrace this inner voice in your head. Find something you're super passionate about. Become the world expert in it. Ignore the naysayers and just go make it happen. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.